welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Good evening, goblins and ghouls. Have I got a show for you. Welcome back to the program, everyone. I am Tickled Pink to have you here with me. Like I said, tonight's episode is like so many before it. It is absolutely packed with an assortment of stories sure to make anyone at the campfire shrivel with fear. So let's show off this embarrassment of ridges and begin our descent down a dark and eerie avenue. It is there that we begin tonight's journey. We begin with Aaron's submission from the state of Missouri. Hi, Derek. I'm a newer listener to the show, but I absolutely love where it's going and everything. My name is Aaron, and I live out in a small town and out in uh, Missouri. I've seen a lot of crazy stuff and had a lot of crazy stories, but um, I just wanted to talk about one of the more prominent ones that I recall. Uh, happened a couple of years back, maybe 2015, and um, my best friend at the time and I, we used to go out to his house and spend all day and all night there all the time. To give a little bit of background of the area, I mean, it was in the middle of nowhere. It was a couple miles away from anybody. He had no neighbors or anything. It was his parents' properties. The house was right in the center of a clear opening. The yard was like a circle, like a circle field. It kind of came up to a to a mound, and that's where the house sat on. And then the circle field around it was only about 50 yards in every direction there from the house. And then you hit wood that just went out for miles, basically. Going throughout high school and before that, we used to spend all of our time out there in the woods and building things and adventuring and stuff. And getting close to the house in the woods in the back, you would never see any deer or any bigger animals. You would just see a lot of like squirrels and birds and whatnot. Well, uh, one night we were out there, and this was right before sunset, right as the sun was setting. And uh, we were out in the woods, had spent all day out there, and we were building some things and adventuring and. Uh, there was a small little creek bed that went through there, and this was about fall time. It was, you know, cold out, cold enough for a jacket. The leaves were on the ground already, transferring into winter. We were out there building and adventuring, and uh, we, things started to settle down and get a little quiet. You know, you could hear an occasional squirrel or bird or whatever, but um, we started uh, standing still, kind of, and talking and moseying about, and we were standing right next to this creek bed. Just as it started to get dark enough to where you can't really see what's going on in front of you, like that weird spot where it just clicks too dark and you don't register it, but it happens and then you're like, hey, you know, I can't really see what's going on. Well, right as that happened, we were talking and I kind of looked to my friend and I tell him, hey, I can't really see anything. We should probably head back in towards the house. We're about 25 yards away from the house. His back porch light is on and you can see it from there. The rest, they say that. We hear like a rustling in the leaves and at first, we were like, ah, maybe it's a squirrel or something like that. But then it started to pause, and every time we talked, it would start to move again, and then pause, and we found it kind of odd. Right as we started to move, we hear it sounded like somebody running, and a kind of a larger breathing sound. We tried to look at each other in the dark, and, you know, we were like, what is that? It started running up from behind him, and uh, it was clearly something big running at us. And I look over his shoulder, and there was just a giant... I can't even describe it. I'm sure other people have described like shadow figures and that type of thing. It was just a giant black mass that was darker than anything else in the woods in the middle of the night. I can't even describe it. It was terrifying. But I saw it over his shoulder and it looked like a smoky, shadowy figure and we just started running. Started running towards his house. So we, we're in this creek bed and we're 
we're running and it's uh, as i mentioned it was already into fall and into winter a little bit out here it was kind of mucky and mushy in there and we're just in this muddy creek bed running and you can see the light to his house but it almost felt like it was getting further away and i'm i'm no stranger to adrenaline-filled situation so i know the effects of, of adrenaline on on the body and in situations like that and i can tell you it was not that type of uh, adrenaline situation. It, it felt like the woods and the light and everything were getting further away. It felt like a tunnel expanding out from where we were, and every step was just getting a little bit further away, even though we were running right towards the light and towards the opening. So running for what feels like 15 minutes when it should have taken 50 seconds tops. My friend's in front of me a little bit here, and we're just running through this creek bed, and I, I at some point along the way, I tripped over a, a log that was cutting across it and falling over. It was part of a tree or whatever, and I flipped over on it. And at this point, I'm upside down in the creek, looking backwards at whatever was behind us because we couldn't fully hear it behind us at that point, but you could feel it. And so I'm upside down. I'm a little dazed, and I kind of come to a little bit. And uh, I'm looking back in this, this mass, still darker than anything else around it and it was so dark that I couldn't see my hand in front of my face this entire time and it had to be all of seven feet tall. When I looked back at it it had a, a, a smoky billowy effect to it and then it had some sort of glow to its eyes. It was like a reddish yellow color and it had this hazy effect to it. You couldn't pinpoint the exact shape of it. It looked like smoke in its form and it was coming straight straight towards me but in that moment looking at it it felt like it it was letting me know that it was not a positive thing that I was seeing it it, it felt completely foreign and it was entirely terrifying so lucky enough for me my friend actually had heard me fall and he spun around and he kind of helped me get up because I was dazed and just staring at this thing we gathered ourselves and continued running all in under a second and um we ran through the creek that pulled all the way up to the opening that field that surrounded his home, and we finally hit the field and the grass. And suddenly, uh, felt like a, it felt like everything was alight again. It felt like the breeze, the air felt clear, and there was no weight to it all. We hear the birds and the squirrels and everything in the woods again, which uh, honestly I don't remember if I mentioned a minute ago, but you couldn't you couldn't hear them as things started to die down before it all happened. It was insane, so we get out of the woods and we go straight into his house and the next day, after a terrible night of trying to sleep, we come back out into the woods where we were and you can see in the creek bed we were looking for you know, clues that it may have been an animal or something like that. And in the creek bed you could see where we were standing and we were talking right next to it. And then where we got into the creek bed to start sort of jogging, and you could see our footprints from him and me facing out a little more as we started to run and you could see the spot where I fell and all of that. But in that creek bed, there were no other prints of any kind, no animal prints, no anything. And I've been around hunting, outdoors, animals, all that type of stuff my whole life. And I know very well that was no, that was no deer, that was no dog. It was no random cow that got off of a farm a couple of miles away. It was something very dark in nature and I'm not sure what it was but I firmly believe in supernatural things and odd, odd things like that that property in which it was on has had a lot of uh, 
a lot of very scary and dark things happen on it. And myself and my friend and his family, we've all seen a lot of shadow figures and heard voices and whispers and things like that over the years there. Many of which I'll maybe call back about. But yeah, it was a terrifying situation. And I'm just curious if maybe anybody else on your show has ever seen something like that, a figure in the woods, almost like a demon dog, I suppose. But so that's the, um, that's that story. And thank you for the show and for all the wonderful listening that I get to do from it. (laughs) I appreciate all of that. Have a good one. Thank you, Aaron. Now, I have zero doubt that Aaron's experience was terrifying, if not life-changing. I have no doubt that what he saw was unlike anything he'd seen before. And I have little doubt that whatever this thing was, it was alive and breathing before him, despite the wispy look and the glowing eyes. So buckle up. We're about to go on a little adventure. Aaron's description of the creature suggests this thing could have been supernatural or a shadow being of some sort. I'm here to convince Aaron and you, fair listener, that this beast was indeed flesh and blood, and dare I say, reported before. As I began my research into this story, I came across the following news clip from KOLR, CBS News 10, out of Springfield. Two wild animal populations are on the rise in Missouri. Black bears and elk have both had an increased presence in the state. And as our Jesse Inman reports, the future for both animals could look very different here in the state. Wildlife in Missouri is thriving at a new level for black bears and elk in 2019. Both populations are up. And as far as elk go, Francis Skaliski with the Missouri Department of Conservation says the herd is moving as well. The elk herd is located in Carter, Reynolds, and Shannon County, which the bulk of it is located in Carter County. But as the population has grown a little bit, it's spread out. Those elk were introduced back in 2011, and Skaliski says the population sits at around 175 right now, and a lot of people have been seeing black bears as well. Black bears, the population currently is between 540 and 840, something like that which the population is also growing, primarily located in the southern part of the state. Skaliski says those bears are mostly the result of Arkansas reintroducing them back in the 1950s and 60s. Now, when I stumbled upon this clip, I started to look at this situation a little differently. I put myself in Aaron's shoes. If I came face-to-face with a black bear, elk, or wild hog, although the clip doesn't mention it, the show-me state has its own feral hog issues. If I came face to face with any one of those massive creatures, I would immediately jump to supernatural as well. And you know, if a light source managed to catch the eye of this animal just right, perhaps that refraction could even account for the glowing eyes. So here's what I'm asking. Is it possible that Aaron, a self-professed hunter and outdoorsman, was spooked by a very large and intimidating animal? causing his emotions and perhaps imagination to assign the supernatural to this nightmarish vision. Now you may be sitting there thinking, this is a bit far-fetched. Well, in that case, allow me to propose another living, breathing suspect. A beast with roots in the state of Missouri. The Missouri Monster. 
70 miles north of St. Louis, the small town of Louisiana, Missouri, sits quietly along the banks of the Mississippi River. Any town of about 4,000 people in Missouri is pretty quiet. It's just a beautiful place to live. Like they could say, there's no place like home. And there's no place quite like Louisiana, Missouri. Not since a monster showed up and terrorized the town. In the fall of 1972, residents of the small Missouri town of Louisiana reported seeing a huge, shaggy, unidentifiable beast. It came to be known as Momo. After months of terrifying encounters, the monster disappeared from view. No further trace of Momo has ever been found. Yet for those who encountered it, they certainly saw a flesh and blood monster. We have miles upon miles of endless woods and deep, deep hollers. He could be just about anywhere in these thick woods we have around here. There are a lot of people in town who 100% believe that Momo exists. I've never doubted what I saw. Never, never once. That clip, of course, comes courtesy of Monsters and Mysteries in America. So how about that? I realize Aaron said that the creature walked on all fours, but there's nothing stopping a hominid like Momo from simply dropping down on all fours. Now, Momo was said to have long, shaggy hair. How could this account for the smoky look that Aaron described? And anyone that's ever heard a Bigfoot description knows that they're often reported to have glowing eyes. And although a plaster cast of a footprint claimed to be that of Momo exists, it's comprised of three toes and looks, in my opinion, to be very handmade. But I'm going to toss that fact in as evidence. You'll see what I mean here in a second. You see, Aaron mentioned that he returned the next day to find no footprints. Now, if these animals are as nimble and elusive as we are led to believe... I can imagine a world where a creature would conceal tracks or even come back later and scrub them out. So the lack of tracks in Aaron's experience doesn't necessarily negate Sasquatch activity. Now if Momo sounds like your jam, the boys over at Small Town Monsters did a sort of documentary last year on the subject. I believe Amazon has it and I highly suggest you check it out. I don't know what Aaron saw that evening but I hope my evidence was sufficient enough to at least make you consider the idea that instead of a wispy, ghostly horror, the folks in Missouri might have a dog-eating monkey man on their hands. And I should point out that there are several flaps, like the Louisiana-slash-Momo flap, that occurred in and around the same time. We'll have to save that for another episode. Thanks again, Aaron, for the thrilling yarn. Now, our next installment of the evening comes to us from outside the States. Please welcome Anna from Canada to the program. Hi there. I'm calling in with a story about Roswell, New Mexico. I'm from Canada. My name's Anna, but I spent a couple of years living in the U.S. with my ex-husband. We had been living in Hollywood at the time, but we just got relocated with our jobs to Dallas. So we had packed up all of our stuff and we were doing the drive from California to Texas. So we, we started our drive 
Um, obviously, there's different routes that you can take to get to Dallas, but we had kind of mapped it out and saw that we could go by New Mexico and go to Roswell. And we thought, okay, you know, when's the next time that we're going to be here and get a chance to do this? So we set out on that direction and the drive through New Mexico started out really beautifully. I remember kind of driving through the desert and it was was gorgeous. The sun was setting out over the desert and it was was really stunning and it felt really serene. It felt really great. And then the sun started to go down. And I remember really distinctly that as the sun was dropping, as we were getting closer to Roswell, that I started to feel really strange. Like I started to get this feeling of just total impending doom and dread. And I felt super uneasy. And I was telling my husband, you know, like, how do you feel? I'm I'm feeling really strange. I have a feeling something really bad's going to happen. And he was trying to, you know, kind of calm my nerves because he's like, we're only about 45 minutes outside of Roswell. We're going to be in town soon. You know, you're probably just tired. The night started to get darker. I just remember feeling really strange. And then all of a sudden, I had really major vision problems. So it was like my eyes were like burning and itching and just feeling really irritated. Um, I couldn't really see and I couldn't really keep them open. I was kind of panicked. I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm feeling so bad. Like something is happening. My eyes are a mess. I can't see. And just as he was kind of trying to calm me down and respond, our car overheated and we had to pull over to the side of the road. So now our car is fully overheated. We turn the engine off. We're not even going to try to restart the car because I don't think you're supposed to do that when an engine overheats. But anyways, we're now pitch black. We're about half an hour outside of Roswell and we're in the desert. And, you know, we're Canadians. We're in America. We're trying to traverse the situation. And I remember getting outside of the car and it's, it's pitch black. Like you can't see anything at all. And you can hear this weird kind of like churning mechanical noise out in the distance. Like there was some sort of big, almost like an oil rig or something. And maybe it was, I don't know, but you couldn't see anything. Anyways, we wait around, you know, 45 minutes for a tow truck. We're both really creeped out. I'm not feeling great. The truck picks us up. We get into Roswell. We find out that the piece we need to repair our car is from a shop that needs to come out of town. So basically, we're stuck in Roswell for a week. We get into our hotel, wake up the next morning. I'm still feeling a little off. And then my husband, this poor guy, is the sickest he's ever been in his entire life. And we've been together for years. I've never seen him so sick. Like, truly, he's puking, he's nauseated, he just feels awful. So he's sick for a couple of days. And on about our, our third day there, we go to the Roswell UFO Museum, which is obviously all about the crash in 1947. So we're in the museum and we're, we're kind of walking around and we're reading everything. And we approach this little kind of description and it's explaining different encounters with aliens. So first encounter, second encounter, third encounter, and then fourth. Obviously fourth encounter being like abduction. But as we're reading them, we're just kind of standing silently side by side. I'm reading it and the blood just drains from my body. And I, I look over at him and he goes white. And we're reading the description of what happens when you have an encounter of the first kind. And it was everything that we had experienced. So it actually said cars overheating in the desert, a feeling of dread and doom, major vision problems where your eyes become super affected. And then one of the people just basically becoming very, very, very ill. So we just kind of like we're reading it and we're like, oh my God, like, did something happen to us? Like, was, was, did we have an experience with something trying to contact us or 
we don't know. But all I can say is that it was it was very alarming. I'll never forget the feeling I had that day, that night when we were out there in the desert. And then, yeah, we were there for another, you know, week. My husband was sick as a dog the entire time. And then as soon as we could get out of Roswell, he was just, like, cured. It was like the further away we drove, the better he felt. So, yeah, it was really interesting. The show is really great, and I love listening to it. Thanks for all of the awesome content and for freaking us all out. Okay, bye. Thank you, Anna. I can't help but look at Anna's experience through the same lens in which I did Aaron's. And I realized some of the symptoms that Anna, her husband at the time, and their vehicle experienced do fall in line with past purported alien abductions. But as a former employee of the military, where I worked with radiation on a daily basis, I immediately noticed these symptoms also fell in line with radiation poisoning, and more accurately, microwave poisoning. Now, despite my history, I'm not overly knowledgeable in top-secret military weaponry. But I knew a good friend of the show and co-host of Hysteria 51, Brent Hand, would have some knowledge he could pass on to me. And he didn't let me down. You see, Brent put me in touch with Jeff Adamak, former U.S. Army Green Beret and federal anti-terrorism agent. And I asked for his input on the call. And whether or not these symptoms that were displayed were associated with any known weaponry. His response was a bit double-sided. He took the logical approach at first in suggesting that, with the mystery surrounding Roswell, maybe the two fell victim of confirmation bias, which is basically where you search out and apply evidence that helps support your claim, ignoring any evidence that doesn't. Now, this is quite common in sightings like these and is certainly through no fault of the witness themselves. And on top of that, I should add that when you're driving through the desert, cars overheat all the time. But I pressed a little harder with Jeff and and asked if it was possible that this was some sort of weapon system that the government was testing in the middle of nowhere. And he had this to say. Jeff mentioned that the LRAD, Long Range Acoustic Device, is one such ultrasonic weapon that the military has in use, specifically the Navy, and he claims that it would produce almost all of the symptoms reported, save for the broken-down car. Now, he went on to add that the microwave systems, like the active denial system, the ADS, produces more of a painful skin-crawling reaction. Now, apparently, he's been hit with this particular ray himself, and he said it wasn't a pleasant experience but he had trouble with Anna and her husband at the time having symptoms at different times. So I picked his brain a little bit to see if there are any circumstances in which one of these weapons may produce effects similar to what was experienced in this call. He finished up by saying that the active denial system, the ADS, the microwave weaponry system, has a range of roughly 5,500 meters. And I asked him if they were shooting this weapon off into the desert at a long distance. And let's say Anna and her husband just happened to be driving just at the edge of this weapon's range. Would they experience these symptoms separately? To which he said, it's not common, but it's entirely possible. And he left me with one more tidbit of information. Apparently this microwave system has the ability to stop vehicles. So I guess like many of these crazy tales, anything can happen. 
Oh, and a big thanks to Jeff for all that info. Jeff actually hosts a podcast called Changing Hearts and Minds, where history of warfare is discussed and researched. Check it out if it's something that rattles your chain. Now before we press play on this next experience, I want to remind everyone that we still need submissions to keep this train rolling. I'm looking for any true paranormal experience. UFOs, monsters, ghosts. If it's Fortean, it's for us. So give that hotline a call at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. And if you're one of those listening from overseas or out of the country, just record your entry on your cell phone and email me the file at monstersamonguspodcast at gmail.com. So keep all those stories coming. The show literally can't go on without them. Now next on the list is Dana's entry from the state of North Carolina. Hi Derek, my name is Dana. I'm uh, calling from uh, North Carolina. I uh, have a story uh, that happened back in 1978. I grew up in uh, northern New England, New Hampshire, a very small town near the Canadian border. It was uh, late fall, 1978, and I was living with my mother, my brother and sister in a uh, house up in the mountains. And there was also a man there, a friend of my mother's, and we were all sitting at the kitchen table. And in that particular house, there was a window that looked out over a big field uh, clearing. Um, We were all sitting there. I really don't remember what we were doing, I guess eating or something, but we were talking and I was looking out the window and I happened to see this bright white light and it was just kind of hovering in the field and I thought, oh, that's a helicopter or plane or something. So I didn't think much about it and then it just kept staying there and I was like, oh, I'm going to go out there and check it out. So I walked out there and They all came out there after me. But that light, it stayed in the field for, I would say, a good five or six minutes. Uh, It wasn't making any sound at all. It was probably no further than, I would say, 500 feet away, you know, up in the sky, probably about another 800 feet. And it was extremely bright, and it was lighting up the field, and it just sat there. And then about five or six minutes later, it just popped off and it was gone. The light just went away and I guess it just flew off. I mean, I really never knew what happened. And we all just kind of looked at each other and said, that must have been a UFO. It was a very clear night. The stars were out and I've always been kind of a sky watcher as far as the constellations and celestial events. So... It definitely wasn't a star, and I can't imagine it was an airplane or anything like that. It was just too quiet. Anyway, that's my story. I love your podcast. I found it about two months ago, and I listen to it all the time now, and I appreciate what you do, and I appreciate a forum to share these stories. Good job. Have a good day. Thank you, Dana. If I were to be honest... 
I could also make a case for this story also having two strange explanations. In addition to Dana's theory that this ball of light could be a UFO, or some sort of craft piloted by extraterrestrials, I also have an explanation of my own, and for once I'm not using an unknown to solve another unknown. So could this have been our old friend, Ball Lightning? It seems to be a rare and mysterious phenomenon called ball lightning. Nobody knows what ball lightning is. I mean, understanding normal lightning is difficult enough, but ball lightning is something entirely different. Yet it has been seen by thousands of people all over the world, and their descriptions are strikingly consistent. Most people describe ball lightning as being about the same size and brightness as a 60-watt light bulb. So suppose you're sitting in your living room and there's a thunderstorm outside. You look out your window and you see this floating along outside your window. You then see it comes through the glass into your living room, approaches you, and then suddenly either exploding or quietly disappears. That's how people describe ball lightning. Now that clip comes courtesy of the Weather Channel, and I find that information fascinating. You know, if it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck. It might just be a duck. The behavior, the description, and overall mystery of it certainly align with the ball lightning phenomenon. And from what I understand, seeing that naturally occurring wonder is almost as unlikely as spotting a genuine alien spacecraft. So either way, I'd say Neil is pretty fortunate. So thank you again, Neil, for sharing. Now, just last week, I released the first episode of a sort of sleep aid theater that I'm producing over on Patreon. Maybe I should call it that. Regardless, I just released the first reading, The Telltale Heart, which is a 15-minute reading of the 1843 classic. And of course, you can also get up to two bonus episodes of Monsters Among Us Beyond per month. There's tons of content over there. So go do your part and keep the main episodes relatively ad-free. Now, the following entry was submitted by Tyler in the state of Georgia. Hey, my name's Tyler, and I'm from Savannah, Georgia. I figured that you might find my story a bit interesting. So I do pest control for work, and my job brings me to downtown Savannah pretty frequently. And throughout my time in downtown Savannah, a lot of the houses I do are vacation rentals. And a lot of these vacation rentals are known to be haunted, but typically when I do the inside of these houses, I never really have any interesting ghost occurrences happen to me, but I did have an occurrence once that I thought was pretty interesting, and it freaked me out for a little bit. Well, this one house is typically a little bit scary. There are weird paintings on the walls. There is a one painting where the eyes are actually cut out of the painting, and it's kind of just sitting there, which is a little bit creepy. So, I start to do this house, and it's a three-story house, so I start from the third story and work my way down. Well, I was walking up, and I got to the third story, and I started to spray. While I was spraying, I kind of just felt like I was being watched, like there was someone there with me, and I felt a little bit uneasy, but I tend to feel a bit uneasy when I do these houses just because of how old they are, and uh, I always think that they're haunted, even if I don't have any experience. Well... As I was spraying, I got finished with one of the rooms and I went into one of the bathrooms. And as I started to spray that bathroom, I just hear a very loud, hey. And 
I don't know where it's from. There's no one in the house. It freaked me out, and I just rushed down the stairs, went out the house, and didn't finish the inside. I've had a few weird experiences after this in other houses, but that by far is the the weirdest paranormal experience I've had. So, all right, thank you. Thanks, Tyler. This is not the first time we've heard a creepy story from an exterminator. I believe the last one was a rock-throwing Sasquatch experience from New England somewhere. I don't know about you, but I smell a new special episode of Bruin. Now, I imagine Tyler has seen some places that others could only imagine. Animal infestation and disgusting human habits aside, I can only imagine some of the tight spaces he's squeezed into. Now, you start tossing ghosts into that mix, and I could see how Tyler wouldn't know which way to run. So thank you, Tyler, for deciding to call and share that experience. Now this is the way I see it. There were two kinds of kids in the world growing up. The ones that enjoyed poking dead things with a stick, and those that did not. Well, Courtney has a story that may make you make that decision. Here's Courtney's call. Hi, Derek. It's Courtney calling back from Massachusetts. I originally called in about the conjuring stories and randomly one evening when my husband and I were listening to your show, like we always do, my memory got jogged for whatever reason. He was telling me some strange encounters he had had. And I remembered about this instance I had. So I grew up in Worcester, which is the biggest metropolitan city in New England next to Boston. It's in central Massachusetts. It's in probably like the center of it. And my parents were divorced and my dad lived in a smaller town on the south side of the city. So when I would commute from his house back to my mom's when I was a senior in high school, I would have to drive through a couple small towns and I would usually take one of the ways I would take would be this Route 20 way and that's a I believe it extends all across the country it's a long stretch of road it's pretty dangerous so really high speed I wouldn't call it a highway more of like an expressway between a lot of the central mass towns and a lot of people use it as a way to commute amongst the towns. I was heading back to my mom's in Worcester from Sutton so I was coming up there's a stretch of Route 20 that's particularly very dangerous at the intersection. But preceding that is a wooded area that it's where the, a town called Auburn and a town called Millbury abut each other. And there's a car dealership there. There's a Mack truck. I want to say it's either a dealership or an auto body place there. And I was coming up the hill upon those two businesses and there's a light there. And there was normally some traffic, but traffic was really heavy for some reason. And then I started to notice a bunch of lights. It was at nighttime. I should mention that I've always been really empathetic. I can always pick up on energy. I read energy really well. I'm the person that walks in the haunted house that nobody knows is haunted, and I start feeling unwell. So back then, I didn't really realize, like, my instincts were usually spot on. But I started to feel really uneasy. And I didn't know why. And I mean, car accidents were really common on this road. I drove by many of them throughout having my license for the last 12 years. And 
I came upon this stretch of road right after the light at the car dealership, and there were tons of cop cars. And the police officers' faces kind of said it all. They were all, like, super concerned, and I was like, oh, man, this is going to be a doozy. Like, I really hope I can get through this quickly, and I don't see anything too crazy because I'm not one of those people that really likes looking at car crashes. And I was driving by, and I noticed in front of my car there was this huge, like, spot of blood. And it was on the road, and it was kind of, like, smeared into the road. It was massive, probably, like, three feet by two feet. And then up a little ways, there was a little more. And I'm like, oh, God. And at that point, it clicked with me. It was probably wildlife. Somebody probably hit a deer that's super common up here. I forget what time of year it was. I had a convertible, and the top was up. So I can't imagine it being too warm. But I don't remember the police officer wearing long sleeves. So I would say either spring or fall. And I come up on this carcass. I don't even know how to adequately explain this, so forgive me as I try. It was in half, and the rear end of it was to my left, and the front end of it was to my right. And we were passing by slow enough where I was able to get a really good look at this thing. They didn't have it covered or anything, and there was a ton of people over by the front end of it and at first I honestly it looked like a lion I thought like it was a lion and we don't have many zoos out this way so I was like that's kind of crazy because especially where this place is there's absolutely nowhere close that could have an instance where it would be a lion like you have down south with you know all those lions that people see so I passed by it and I realized that it's a dog or a wolf of some sort Whatever this is, it's huge. And it just completely disheveled in half. And the vehicle that hit it was completely worse for wear. The driver was, from what I understand, okay, because I kind of eyed the papers the next day and stuff to see if there would be anything about it. And there was nothing. So I assumed that the driver was okay because usually they list that in the papers the next day. It had to be probably very similar to the stature of a lion, except it was a dog. It was similar coloring. And wolves are not common in this area at all. I have never seen one in my life. I think we're a little too warm where we are in Massachusetts for that. I really think people way further up north in New England see wolves occasionally. But this thing was so big. And it was, like I said, cut in half. And there was just so much carnage to it that the size that this thing had to be was intense and like I said there were tons of people over there just gawking at it talking about it so this was the talk of the town a lot of people it like went about in whispers I heard a couple people talking about it at a local breakfast place the following weekend and it it got around but I never heard anything of it never looked into it I think maybe it was just a really thick wolf but I'm telling you this thing was like abnormally large. I mean, I wouldn't say some of the really big ones that are the size of trucks that a lot of people talk about, but a very, very large tiger or lion at minimum, like extra large tiger or lion at minimum. And it was just huge. And I I was shocked to not see anything about it the next day because I just feel like that's something we would want taxidermied or documented somehow, but I didn't see anything. So weird story nonetheless. 
I hope you see this, and I am loving the show. Take care. Thank you, Courtney. This reminds me of the Montauk monster and all the other partially decomposed land mammals that washed up, swelled beyond recognition. If you can't tell, I don't have much faith in those creatures being quote-unquote unexplained. To me, it appears they are dogs or raccoons or possums that simply lost the outside layer of their skin and fur as a result of being submerged in water for a number of days. But you know, Courtney's experience is a little bit different. Her creature was very large. It wasn't washed up on the beach. And, unlike the Montauk monster, Courtney's story has not seen the same kind of media attention. But that still leaves us with the same question. What is it? Perhaps there's someone else out there that saw this event. Maybe a first responder on the scene is listening and can shed a little light on this mystery. I would love to know what it is Courtney saw that evening. Thanks again, Courtney, for introducing us to this little mystery. Now, our next submission of the evening is a little bit different than the rest. But if you're anything like me, you're going to love this. Please welcome Michaela, all the way from the UK, to the program. Hi, Derek. This is Michaela from Chichester in the UK. When I was a child, I lived in the county of West Yorkshire, which is in the north of England, and this is where my story is set. I've written it all out so that I don't forget any of the details. Here it is. I must have been about eight years old when we saw them. We were at school playing out in the playground when it happened. There'd always been a rumour about so-called zombies that wandered around the old derelict house in the middle of the field near school. In our minds, however, these monsters were not anything like the traditional idea of zombies but somewhere nearer to a type of grim reaper or hooded monk. Children in the village would whisper about them walking around in their hooded, black cloaks, chasing the cows and eating them. To be honest, it sounded unlikely to me even then, and I really had no idea what a zombie would look like, even if I met one. However, I was small and it was exciting to continue the tradition of scaring each other to death in the playground at school. Bradshaw, our small village in the heart of the Yorkshire Dales, was rife with mysterious stories of haunted houses and strange happenings. The hillsides were peppered with old, derelict houses and mills, crumbling away into the ground making exciting and dangerous playgrounds for us to explore. We'd dare each other to go into darkened, wind-whistling rooms and scare each other with tales of dead babies being found half-eaten by werewolves, all the while brave yet terrified. There just so happened to be one of these derelict houses within sight of our school field, and on this particular day the weather was fair. It was winter, I think but windy, and we were all chasing around in the playground as usual. Suddenly, one child shouted out above the rest, Zombie! Zombie! I can see a zombie! A huge group of us raced over to where the kid was pointing. There! There it is! Oh, there are three of them! We all followed her eagerly pointing finger across the school field, over the next 
and into a long field which sloped gradually upwards towards the hill where the haunted house was. As I looked, I blinked in disbelief. There, in the middle of the long field, were three black, cloak-clad figures moving slowly behind a herd of cows. The figures were dressed like reapers, each holding a long wooden staff with a hooked end. Their faces were hidden from view under their long dark hoods. The cows did not seem to be afraid, but wandered unconcerned up the hill as the zombies herded them slowly in the direction of the house. Myself and the other children were just going mad, jumping, shrieking and pointing at the figures. The midday meal supervisors looked very confused and worried as they tried to contain the hysterical mob of children. The one thing that really stuck in my mind was that the adults could not see the figures. I do remember asking if I could go over to the other side of the school field to get a better look. I was sharply told no, and as I was an obedient child I did as I was told. However, I longed to get closer, to see properly what these creatures were and what their faces looked like. Soon we were all hastily ushered inside, as we were so overexcited and break time was ended early. I reluctantly walked towards my classroom, keeping my eye on the figures all the way back until I got to my class. I was desperate to carry on watching the zombies from the window, but unfortunately we couldn't see into the field properly from the classroom, and as I pressed my nose against the glass, straining to see around corners, I knew I would never forget this day for the rest of my life. I didn't understand what we'd seen, but surely... Twenty children couldn't be wrong. As I grew up, the events of that day were put firmly to the back of my mind, and it wasn't until I was in my mid-twenties that the memory of the zombies would return to haunt me. One Sunday, my friend Diane and I were walking back from my house when she suggested we go to have a cup of tea with her friend Alex. Diane told me that Alex's dad owned the village farm shop. We trooped up the hill to the farm and Diane led us through the farmyard to two small apartments built next to each other at the edge of the long field next to the school where I had attended. Alex's dad had built them for her and her brother so that they could have their own space when they were teenagers. Alex answered the door immediately and led us into the small apartment. While she made us a cup of tea, I rifled through her book collection and spotted the book Maribou Store Nightmares, which I'd always wanted to read. Alex kindly said that I could borrow her copy of the book. As we stood in her kitchen chatting, we gazed out onto the field, talking about nightmares, ghosts and such like. Alex told us that she believed in ghosts, and how her dad had always encouraged her to trust her instincts, not stifling her imagination as a child. Looking out of the window, I realised that Alex's flat was built right at the top end of the field, which had played out such a disturbing scene in front of me all those years ago. Feeling slightly embarrassed, I told Alex about the so-called group hallucination my friends and I had had in the school playground, describing the figures with their black hooded cloaks and wooden staffs, herding the cows to their death. 
Without a flinch, Alec looked at me straight in the eye and said, Oh yes, I see them all the time. Talk about a moment where your blood runs cold. I've never forgotten that moment. It's etched on my memory forever. I don't know what to make of it, and I'd be interested to see what you think, Derek. I've looked into it, and there aren't any records that I can find of similar creatures being seen in the local area. But it was so fresh in my mind, and still is, even after all these years. It's a true experience that really happened to me, as I wrote it, and I'd really like to know what you think. As your listeners often say, I've got more stories to share, so I'll call in again sometime in the future. Anyway, thanks for sharing my story. Keep up the good work. It's a great podcast. Thanks, Derek. Bye. Thank you, Michaela. I have to admit, I thoroughly enjoyed your narration throughout this story. I gotta say, well done. Now, as for the entities themselves, my first thought when listening to this was, are these cattle herders? Assuming that that's something that exists over there. Were they possibly wearing robes to keep the sun out or the warmth in? Outside of that, I'm coming up short on any logical explanations. But I do want to point out that there were three of these entities. And they were also donning robes, garb that some witnesses claim the mirrored men wore. But I don't want to do any wild speculation. So thanks again, Michaela, for the charming yet teeth-chattering entry. I'm hoping a listener can shed a little light on what's going on here. And here we are, folks. It seems like we hit this point in almost every episode. Tonight's final entry. And I've dusted off a great call I've been holding on to for a while. So without further ado, the following submission comes to us from a man named Moose in the state of Wyoming. Hey Derek, my name is James. Everybody calls me Moose. I was born and raised in Jackson, Wyoming. Back in 1990 or 91, I was about... 10 or 11 years old. We had a dude ranch there, and my buddy that lived down the street from me got a horse for his birthday, and we thought that was pretty cool, and we took off on a horse ride. I think we were out for two or three days. Back then, I mean, we could disappear for a couple days, and nobody would pay no mind, but uh, we rode all the way up this canyon called Cash Creek Canyon. I remember we stopped at a, a little creek uh, that had a culvert it was all torn up, and it's usually hard to get horses across it. But we were sitting there running back and forth, jumping because our horses would jump it. And it was, I thought that was pretty fun. But we stopped and unsaddled to give the horses some rest. And I remember as I was leaning up against the tree, my horse started snorting and taking his ears forward, and like something was bothering him. And I all of a sudden started smelling this horrible smell. It was different than a decaying body smell. It was that plus something else that I really can't describe. But we did, I decided, thinking that it might be a dead elk, I went to go see if I could find the ivories, if that was in fact what it was. And I told my buddy that that's what I was doing. And I went up alone. He was sitting at the creek washing his hands and stuff. So I just went up. It was about maybe 50 yards away. I 
come up around at the foot of this cliff, and it was later in the day, about maybe a couple hours before dusk, before the sun went down to the mountain, and I had thought I had located the smell, and I go walking up, and all of a sudden, this big old dude comes walking around the cliff face, and the way the sun was shining, I could only see from his waist up. And he was a black man that had a very long beard and kind of long hair, kind of dreaded. But what was weird is that he was bald on top, but his head kind of went to a point. I remember seeing that. I remember thinking, man, that looks like it hurts because it looked like it was kind of raw. Anyhow, I saw that he had a what looked like a black bear skin coat on. Now, to put this in perspective, we have known several mountain men that have kind of quit society and decided to go up and live in the wilderness and we'd even talked to a couple of them and we traded some stuff so they'd get supplies and they'd head back into the mountains and I'm thinking that's what this was. Of course living in a tiny little town you know out in Wyoming I didn't know any black people at that point I never met one and all I knew was from watching football and in my uneducated mind uh, you know black people were bigger and stronger and you know more athletic so I just thought that's what he was he's just huge but as I noticed as he would move he looked at me he knew I was there he gave me this look like he was very annoyed that I was there but he kind of didn't pay much mind to me and he would look back up the hill like he was looking for something or or maybe even waiting on something so I kind of raised up my hand like to wave and said howdy you know he looked back at me and kind of, I think he rolled his eyes at me. And as he did that, he looked straight up the cliff, which was about, oh, 40 feet. And he put his hand up on this natural ledge there and kind of looked back at me. And he didn't have a lot of hair in the middle of his back. It didn't look like a shirt at all. If it was, it was very form-fitting. And he just effortlessly just pulled himself up on the ledge with his other hand and, and then he did it again and has kind of scaled this cliff with just using his arms. He, you know, did it about three or four times and he was up to the top and gone. And I remember thinking, man, that was such a heck of a strong dude. And at that moment, I noticed my buddy had saw me and he said, did you find it? And I said, no, look. And I thought he had seen it, but he later claimed that he didn't. But I didn't pay much mind to it. And we left, got our horses saddled, and took off. Well, a few years later, I remember I was 12. That's the first year I was taught to train horses. And me and my cousin had these two colts that we were training in the spring. And then in the fall, we went on a pack trip, and we went up that canyon. And that culvert that we got to, colts wouldn't even go near it. And, and the rest of them went on, and they, my dad said just to get him across somehow and, and catch up with us. So after fighting with the horses several minutes, probably about 20 minutes or so, we were all tired. Horses were sweating, we were sweating, and my cousin and me were kind of resting and we we're talking, and I, I happened to notice I was sitting right at the base of that cliff. And all of a sudden it all came back to me, and I realized I was parallel with my eyes, looking right at that ledge that he had grabbed onto. And I was like, boy, that, that was several feet high. And I looked up and I said, you know what? And I told my cousin what had happened years before and how I scaled up the cliff like nothing. And he's like, there's no way. That guy would have had to have been eight feet tall to grab a hold of that first part of the ledge. And 
I argued with him and told him what I had seen, and he just didn't believe it. And we ended up getting back on a horse, and we took off. I never thought much of it. I didn't even think Bigfoot at the time. In fact, it wasn't years later in 2008, I started getting into Bigfoot and getting real curious about it. And I remember hearing some of the evidence that people would come across, like the tree knock, the, the whooping and stuff. And I remember I've heard that stuff all my life. So I was looking on the Internet, and I come across a drawing, and I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, that looks like what I saw, except for the one I saw had no longer hair and a beard that was gray in the middle difference was the one I saw was bald and I mean it all kind of hit me that oh my gosh I, I think maybe I'd seen one I never heard of a Bigfoot being bald and thought maybe I'd tell the story partly because I'm kind of curious on if anybody else would see something like that and the other part because me and my kids listen to a podcast and I one of the only things we have in common that we like to listen to <laughs> so they told me I should uh, call in and tell this story. So I did make a drawing of it. i kind of an artist, and I kind of drew one. I thought if you wanted to see it, I could send it to you. Not very technical savvy, so I have to be told how to send it to you. But that's my story. And uh, like I said, uh, my kids and I enjoy your podcast, and uh, we listen to it all the time appreciate the open mind that you have, but yet you're still skeptic and, and, and logical, and I think you have a real good balance. You talk good work, man. Thank you, Moose. I spent a little time living in Wyoming when I was a teenager, and it doesn't take long living in that state to realize how vast and sparsely populated it actually is. There's plenty of space to hide a monster. But Wyoming is not a state that comes to mind when discussing the big guy. So much so, in fact, that I had to dig pretty hard for other references. Addie Lloyd lives in Wyoming, so I reached out to her for all the details, only to discover that there's not much in those cupboards. We found a sighting here or there, but nothing to hang our hats on. But for the most part, a state known for its seclusion has successfully secluded its big feet. Then it dawned on me, this is likely a case of statistics. The creature may be there, but with a population of only around 580,000, less than that of Washington, D.C., and a landmass roughly the size of the state of Oregon. It's no wonder that the sighting count is as low as it is. Now, assuming these things are real, you have to have people to have a sighting. Now, I'll keep digging into the cowboy state. There's got to be some information in there somewhere. But until then, thanks again, Moose. It seems like an incredible experience. And that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Hattie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And that bone-chilling soundtrack you hear in the background. Let's co.ag music. Thank you all for listening. And until next week.
Now, tonight's hidden entry takes us to Western Pennsylvania, where Neil has a tale for us. Uh, hi, Derek. It's Neil calling from outside of Pittsburgh again. Uh, this is a super quick one, as opposed to my last rambling call. So I moved in with my girlfriend about three years ago, and she had mentioned seeing something that she calls a fuzzy gator. Like, basically, we live at the top of this hill, and she had seen this thing that looked like an alligator. It walked like an alligator with its legs kind of splayed out, and she said it was, like, fuzzy. Like, that's basically how she described it. And, of course, I'm thinking she's messing with me because she messes with me all the time. So anyway, about two, three years ago, I move in with her and I park my car up around the corner, walking around the corner to come in the house and down at the bottom of the hill, I swear to God, is it looks like an alligator, but it's cream colored, like straight up like like a light brown color. And I just see it go walking across the street like it owns the place. And I guess there's a sore opening down there where there was at the time. It's closed up now. So apparently it walked across the street and slipped down into the sore opening. I have no idea what the heck this thing was. I have not seen it since then. I've been keeping an eye out for it because, you know, it's a fuzzy alligator. I mean, how, how amazing is that? Um, maybe it's an alligator that's got some alligators. Obviously you can't get mange because they don't have fur. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's uh, scales are coming off or swapping off. Now, they've had sightings of alligators in the Pittsburgh area, but other people have seen this fuzzy gator. She saw it. She, I just asked her about it a minute ago. She said it was about 10 years ago when she'd seen it. So this thing's been on her at least a decade. I just saw it, like I said, about two or three years ago. I don't know what to say. I was actually think I posted about this on the Facebook page to ask if anyone else had seen it. No one else, not had seen it, but seen it something like it, and no one responded to it. The one thing that's kind of interesting is I've looked it up on Google for reptilian sightings, and there was a reptilian, apparently something in New Kensington, which is about a half-hour drive from us, where several children saw something that looked like a reptilian something or other running down into a sewer. That's really all it said about it. I've been meaning to look more into it because, you know, how often do you see here, that kind of thing. But... Um, yeah, I'm just curious if anyone else has ever seen anything like this. It, like I said, it looked like an alligator, had the legs splayed out, kind of did that weird little walk that it does, and there was like a creamy beige color, possibly furry. I couldn't see the fur myself, but it was definitely not the same color as an alligator would look like. And I have unfortunately gotten super close to an alligator once we were down in Florida. I got yelled at about that because apparently they're a lot faster than I assume that they are. But whatever i survived so all right have a good day talk to you later love your show bye thanks neil now, i'm not sure what to make of this but like many of the other stories this evening i have a theory now alligators are notoriously hardy animals they can survive and thrive in places you couldn't imagine a creature like that living so keep that in mind as i lay this theory out Let's say hypothetically that someone in the 80s or early 90s had a pet alligator, an albino alligator, and it grew too large for its enclosure, so the well-intending pet owner dumped him in the nearest water source. And since the climate of Pittsburgh isn't relatively a warm one, 
So many would argue that despite a gator's ability to pass cold spells by freezing their nostrils above ice, that still likely won't get them through a Pennsylvania winter. But Neil said the creature was seen near a sewer or some sort of storm drain. Could a source of heated runoff water be enough to get a gator through the cold Pennsylvania winters? And of course, there would be no shortage of food in that area. No doubt a few pets came up missing as well. But I hear you guys in the back, yelling out, what about the fuzz? Well, many of these heated runoffs develop algae growth, typically turning a rust red or a mustard yellow color. There's no reason to believe that this gator wouldn't be covered in this algae as well, especially in the springtime, when this theoretical creature would be forced to stay submerged or die, only surfacing a few times a day for air. Now, it's entirely plausible and, frankly, the only thing I can think of. Whatever it is, I'd love to know if it's still there. So there's your chance, Pittsburgh folk. Grab your poles and your nets and your pitchforks. It's time to find a monster. Thank you again, Neil, for sharing your story. And thank you for sticking around to the end of the program. Have a great night.